The following audio is from West Pines Community Church. For more information about West Pines, visit us online at westpines.org. You can join us live Sunday mornings at 9, 10, 30, or 12 in Pembroke Pines, Florida, or online at westpines.org. Uh, in the years 2010 and 2011, I was part of a Bible study uh, that I got together with the same similar group of people uh, every single week, and uh, really this Bible study had a profound impact on my life. Uh, It wasn't so much uh, anything in particular that we studied that just changed me, but it was really just getting to study the Bible together with people. And so uh, meeting there every single week on Thursdays, it really became the highlight of my week in many ways. I'd get excited. We'd, We'd laugh together. We'd have fun together. We'd open up the scriptures, pray for each other. We'd eat together. Uh, and it was really, it was just a wonderful, wonderful time. And uh, there's this one season in particular that sticks out um, because there was this guy, we'll call him Bob. So Bob uh, would come every so often to this Bible study. And Bob was the cousin of one of our regulars. And I think Bob visited into town quite often. And so when Bob would come, uh, it was always extra fun. Uh, and uh, for whatever reason, Bob had this thing where whenever it came to prayer request time, Bob liked to have a different prayer request for a celebrity. And so we'd get to our prayer request time, and so we're praying for people's grandmothers who are sick, and we're praying for people who don't know Christ, family members who they they want to share Christ with them. And we're praying for all these different things, and then here comes Bob, and he's like, you know, I think we need to pray for Angelina Jolie and what she has going on, and sincere of heart, totally normal, and so, you know, the Bible says we should pray for all people, so sure enough, we pray for these celebrities at our Bible study, and uh, there, was, there was one time, and I've shared this before with our students, they might know where this is going, there was one time where he shared a prayer request, and it's not so much the person, I think we, we should pray for this person, but it's the nature of the request that just had me bewildered. And, and so he said, I think we need to pray for Justin Bieber because uh, I just noticed he removed his purity ring and he no longer wears it. And millions of children across America who look up to Justin Bieber might just go rampant in the streets and have impure impulses because their hero, Justin Bieber, removed his purity ring. And uh, he said it a little differently. Um, And so he shared this request, and the point of this is not to knock uh, Justin Bieber or my friend Bob. Uh, The point of this is just to illustrate something about our culture. And uh, to be honest, I'm sitting there in that Bible study, and and this prayer request is being shared, and I know what's coming next is when we disperse, like who's going to pray for what, And I'm praying, dear God, please do not give me that request. I will not be able to make it through and pray with sincerity. I'm just not proud of that, okay? And uh, so anyways, we we prayed for Justin Bieber that night, and uh, uh, he did not put his purity ring back on. So keep praying for Justin. Um, But that that indicates something about our culture. Uh, It indicates something about the world we live in, where we, we elevate people on these platforms to such an extent that, that literally, uh, we think that the, the deduction is, is somewhat reasonable, that people will see whether a person, a person puts a ring on or removes it, and that influence will then translate to people's lives being changed. That there are people that have such a platform and such influence, such celebrity, that if they wear something, if they do something, immediately it goes viral. It becomes the trend. 
We live in this world where it's dominated by that. Tab- the tabloid industry makes millions of dollars profiting off our desire to kind of get sucked into the lifestyles of these people. And so this is the nature of our culture. This is the world we live in. And the danger is, if we aren't careful, that cultural idea can then translate itself into the church. To where in church, in Christianity, we have this view that there are certain platforms. There's some superstars up top. They're the trained ones. They're the professional ones. They're the ones that have the large followings. And they're the ones who have studied all this much. And these are the super, super Christians, right? And there are these elite group of people up at the top who have this amazing platform. And if we aren't careful, we can translate that idea of celebrity to the church to where now we're no longer just the church where we are the people called to carry out the mission of God, but instead we consume, we sit and just consume what we view as the elite, the superstars, the professionals as they feed us and and give us what we want and we have this mentality. In the book of Acts chapter 11, we're going to see a different paradigm. We're going to see a different way of viewing church different way of viewing Christianity than just seeing an elite group at the top that has this top-down influence. Instead, it's a very much bottom-up influence where ordinary people, real people, like you and me, people that will one day die and you won't remember their names, that God uses these people to do extraordinary things. That's what we're going to see in Acts chapter 11. So let's... um, have, their, have your place there. I want to give you a little bit of background before we jump into the text of what's happening in this story. In Acts chapter 11, we're going to read about the church at Antioch. So we're going to talk about that church. And, and the way that Antioch, the, the church there, started is quite interesting. Uh, the church at Antioch began, you have to go back a few chapters in the book of Acts, and what you read is uh, first about a guy named Stephen. A guy named Stephen, he was a leader in the church in Jerusalem, So Jesus died, rose from the dead, and started his church there in Jerusalem. There's a bunch of Christians in Jerusalem now, uh, thousands of Christians centered in Jerusalem. And a guy named Stephen, one of the leaders in the church, is killed. In fact, Stephen is, is stoned to death for his faith in Christ. He was sharing Jesus with some religious people who did not like his message. And so they stoned him to death. And it's interesting that Stephen, this tragic death, causes something to happen. I want you to see with me Acts chapter 8 verse 1. Look what it says. Acts chapter 8 verse 1. And there arose on that day, the day that Stephen was killed, a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. So the apostles remained, the leaders remained in Jerusalem. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. So Stephen is killed, and the people who love him and know him weep. They make great lamentation over him, and what happens is the church scatters. So about eight years had passed since Jesus rose from the dead, and really the church had kind of stayed put in Jerusalem, growing in Jerusalem, in that area, And the persecution that arose that happened after Stephen died, was killed, what happened is the church scattered, Christians start going to these different places. And so I have a map with me so that it'll hopefully uh, give us, uh, well, let me give you this context first. Uh, Acts chapter 11, verse 19. Read this with me. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen 
traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, or the Greeks also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. So we hear, we read about the church scattering, going to these different places. So now I have the map for you. So check this out. You can see some of these locations. So if you'll look, you'll see that Jerusalem is there uh, in that area of Judea. And so that's kind of where the church was centered. And then as a result of Stephen's death, starting this persecution of Christians, you see this movement, this scattering out from Jerusalem all throughout the region. And one of the places that these scattered Christians went to was Antioch. Now, one of the reasons why we use maps and why maybe your Bible has maps and you kind of check them out and you're curious as to why they're even there, what's so helpful about a map is that it reminds us that these are real places. Like when we open up the Bible, we're just not reading stories that are supposed to give us a cute lesson. They're not some fables that have some moral to the story. Yes, there's truth that God wants to speak to us, but these are historical documents. These are real places. These are real people who saw their real friend Stephen killed, who left their homes, families perhaps divided, going all throughout the region fearing that they might be next. And one of the places they go to is Antioch. So this is a real place. This is actually happening in history. And so they go to Antioch. And as they go, they speak the word. The phrase that it uses, they speak the word to both the Hellenists or the Greeks and to the Jews. Now, the word that it's describing is the heart of Christianity. It's describing the gospel. So these people, when they scattered, undoubtedly wrestling with fear, undoubtedly wrestling with what God might be doing, that one of their friends and leaders passed away, with all their questions, they go to these different places and they bring the gospel with them. The gospel is this, that God looked down on every single one of us in all of humanity and every single one of us have fallen short of his standard, that all of us have sinned, that every person throughout history has been a selfish, jealous, lying, proud sinner who has issues And because of that, God should rightly look at humanity and pour out judgment and wrath. So God looks at me, he looks at Justin, and he should pour out his judgment and wrath on me. But God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And God sent Jesus to come and bear the judgment for us. So the message they came and brought to these places was not morality. The message they brought to this place was not some philosophy or teaching that could get their lives straight. It was, it was this radical, scandalous message that we deserve eternal judgment from God, but he sent his son to bear that judgment for us. Jesus came. God himself was here. He died and he rose from the dead. And we saw it. Many of the believers in Antioch who started this church very likely could have seen the risen Jesus. Or they know somebody who saw him alive. So they come with this good news of great joy for all people. 
And what's happening here in the book of Acts, if you can kind of zoom out from just this one section, if you read the context, what's happening is Luke, the author of Acts, is showing how now this good news is not just good news for one ethnic group and one nation. It first was focused around the Jewish people, the nation of Israel, but now Luke is taking a turn to where now the gospel, the good news, is starting to change hearts among people from all different sorts of nations. How the Greeks, the Gentiles, are starting to come to faith. And some of the men, it says, preached to the Greeks, and they turned to Jesus. So we see this amazing work start happening in Antioch. And watch what happens next. Word begins to spread. Uh, Acts chapter 11, verse 22. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. And they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So word begins spreading about what's happening in Antioch. People start hearing. Word got around even before there was internet or telephones. Word starts spreading about this work that's happening in Antioch across the way several miles tens, hundreds of miles away from Jerusalem. And the mother church in Jerusalem hears this, and they're like, okay, let's go check this out. So they send a guy named Barnabas to kind of do a recon mission. Barnabas goes, representing the church in Jerusalem, to Antioch to check out what's happening, to verify what they're hearing. And Barnabas sees something. I love how Luke, he he records what Barnabas sees, and he only gives one description of the church at Antioch. He describes it with one thing. When he goes and Barnabas checks it out, Luke does not say the church at Antioch was full of stand-up guys who just really knew what they were doing. It says that he went and he saw the grace of God at work. That what marked the church at Antioch was the grace of God at work. This is the message. This is the word. This is the gospel. Grace. That God takes undeserving people, flawed people, And though what we deserve is judgment and punish from him, God gives us what we don't deserve. It's grace. It's love and mercy through his son, Jesus. And so Barnabas goes and checks it out and he sees the thing he notices, the grace of God at work. And just as a part of this church family, like this is the family we call West Pines, if this is your church home, like if, the, if there was one thing that we could say, man, if, if, if someone was to write an account of the history of West Pines and to document it and, and see how God used West Pines, if there was one description that we could choose, I think one of the things we would agree on is that we would love for someone to write, they saw the grace of God at work. If that's what defined us, if that's what described us, I, I'd, be, I'd be happy. I'd be, I'd be pretty excited that the grace of God is what defined us. And what that means is that some of you perhaps are here because someone invited you, maybe they've been inviting you for months, pestering you, wanting you to come. And maybe today you came just to make them quiet. But the reason we extend those invitations is because we want to be marked by the grace of God. We want you to experience what we've experienced. That God looks at you though you should be condemned and he sent his son to rescue you. That's what we want. The grace of God at work. This is what's happening in Antioch. This amazing movement. 
In fact, when you turn through and you go through the book of Acts, the church at Antioch comes up again. It wouldn't be an exaggeration to say that the church at Antioch was one of the most influential churches in the first century. Perhaps even one of the most influential churches in history. The church at Antioch is is responsible, really, for a church planting movement of multiple churches that can trace their origin back to this one church. It was the grace of God at work in Antioch. And I think there's some things we can learn from our brothers and sisters in Antioch. And when when we consider that Acts is recounting the expansion of Christianity, how God is growing his church... The beginning of Acts in chapter 1 gives us kind of the roadmap of how Acts is going to work. Acts chapter 1, verse 8, it's kind of Jesus' great commission, and it's also the roadmap for the entire book of Acts. Jesus in in Acts 1, 8 says this, You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. He's speaking to his disciples, saying, You will be my witnesses. You are going to the ends of the earth with this good news. And then in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, Jesus tells Peter, he says, Peter, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Jesus didn't stutter. He didn't hesitate. Sometimes when we make big statements like that, there's like a little reluctancy in our voice, maybe timidity, a little subtle kind of like, you know, that, that might happen. Jesus here saying, I will build my church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. You, my disciples, will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. People from every nation, every tribe, every tongue, every language group will surround the throne, praising and adoring our God who is worthy of praise from all the nations of the earth. That is what God is doing. That is his mission in the world. And Jesus says this will happen. There's no chance of it not happening. And so if that's the mission, right, if if that's the mission, if that's where we're heading towards, then what's the plan? How do we get there? What does it look like for us to strive towards that mission? Now, when we make plans, um, uh, depending on how obsessive-compulsive you are, uh, you make plan A, plan A, plan B, plan C, plan D, plan E, right? So, so we make all these plans to try and, you know, solve a problem or come up with a solution to something. And, and making plans is good. It's wise. Good leaders make lots of plans and think through different options and look at problems from every angle and wonder uh, unintended consequences of decisions. And so we make plan A, plan B, plan C. God has plan A and that's it. There's no plan B. And I want to share with you, based on what the church church at Antioch is demonstrating for us, what they're showing us, I want to give you kind of God's plan A for growing his church. Here it is. God takes cosmically unqualified and colossally imperfect people, and he empowers them to share the hope of Jesus with a hurting world. He takes cosmically unqualified. It's purposely awkward sounding cosmically unqualified. Like people who really, they they have no business standing as though they are representing an ambassador of the God of the universe pleading with people to receive the grace and forgiveness of Jesus. He takes unqualified people and colossally imperfect people, people with issues, people with real struggles, people with things in their past 
that would make you blush. And he takes these people, he redeems and restores and heals them, and he empowers them to go out and share the hope that is in them. This is God's plan A, and he's been working plan A for 2,000 years. It's not this top-down superstar, let me get a couple of all-star people and then let them do the work. It's a bottom-up, the people of God, every single one of us, empowered by him, despite all of our imperfections and flaws, God working through his people. That's what we see at Antioch. And Antioch, the church there, the people, they, they take the excuses that, that I make and that you make. The excuses we come up with that make us feel like God can't use us. And they take those excuses and it's like they just kind of throw them on the ground and stamp on them. They just didn't care. And so they went and served. And so I want to share with you a couple of those excuses that I'm, I'm guilty of. Those, those feelings that keep us from being used by God. So here's, here's the first one. God can't use me. I'm unqualified. God can't use me. I can't serve in that way. I, I, can't, I can't talk to that person about my faith. I, I don't feel qualified. I, every time I get in a conversation, I just kind of feel like, I feel like, man, I, I don't know what their, the answer to their questions are. I feel inadequate. I feel unqualified. Surely there are people who are more qualified than I am to tell them about this. It's this sense of inadequacy, and it causes a fear that puts us in turtle mode where we, we take our faith and we just kind of put it under its shell. And, and what the church at Antioch does is, is it says, man, don't let that fear keep you from living out the mission that God has for you with the people he has in your life. Look at verse 20. Verse 20, let's look back at Acts chapter 11, verse 20. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. There were some of them, men of Antioch, men of Cyprus and Cyrene who went to Antioch. So there are some people who were from Cyprus and Cyrene who go to Antioch and they start telling Greeks about Jesus. In other words, they're doing mission work. They travel to a different place, to a different culture, with different customs, and they start telling them about Jesus. Who were these men? Who were the men that were responsible for starting one of the most influential churches in the first century? The ones who went and founded that church. We don't know. We don't have their names. They're not recorded. There's no plaque. We don't know who they were. What we do know is that they weren't apostles. They weren't the leaders. Remember, they, they were still in Jerusalem. All had scattered except the apostles. They remained in Jerusalem. But these, these were regular people. These were businessmen and farmers and merchants and regular people. Families. And they go to Antioch and they start this church. These are unqualified people. These are really ordinary people that God used to start a church that would be the catalyst for so many churches throughout the Roman Empire starting. Ordinary people. The church at Antioch takes our excuse. I mean, I just don't feel qualified. 
and the fear that comes with that. And they put that aside and they said, no, we're just going to be faithful to what God has for us. Uh, in the book of 2 Corinthians, chapter 4, verse 7, the Apostle Paul says, We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Paul is speaking of the fact that we have treasure. We have God himself at work in us. If you're a believer in Jesus, God is at work in you. It's treasure. And we have it in jars of clay. Jars of clay are fragile. They break easily. Jars of clay are easily scratched. They're not very durable. They don't last all that long. But we have this treasure in jars of clay on purpose to show that the surpassing power is not from us. That God is the one who provides that power. He empowers unqualified people. Ordinary people. And so... If you feel unqualified, feel like God, God can't use me, I don't know enough. I, if you have a story of how God has changed your life through Jesus, you have a testimony, then by the word of your testimony and by pointing people to the same God who did that for you, you have all you need. The Spirit of God at work in your heart, empowering you to do what you're not qualified to do, what I'm not qualified to do. This is what God does. He uses unqualified people. Now, the second one that we often come up with, or maybe there's a few in here who, this is your, this is your reason. God can't use me because of what I've done. God can't use me because of my past. God can't use me because of the people that I've hurt and the damage that I've caused. Maybe it goes even deeper than that. Not only can God not use me, but perhaps God can't love me or forgive me because of what I've done. If you knew what I did, and there's this guilt and shame and regret that can come over us and just keep us from all that God has for us. Where there are the people around us that maybe we used to do that stuff with, that we feel like we can't reach out to them because once we were with them, where we feel like God can't use us to, to share the hope we have because we did the same thing. And guilt over our past is keeping us from faithfulness to God in our present. And so what the church at Antioch does is it, it takes that excuse again and it, it throws it aside. I want, I want to take you on a journey Follow with me. It's going to go through a little bit of the book of Acts. So look with me at Acts chapter 7, verse 58 through 8-1. They'll be on the screen. Uh, if you want, you can turn there. Acts chapter 7, verse 58. Uh, hopefully this will make sense in a moment. Listen to what this says. We're backtracking back to when Stephen was killed. Stephen, the guy who was killed and caused the spread of the church. Acts chapter 7, verse 58. Then they cast him, Stephen, out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep, he died. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. So follow this. The, the ringleader, 
the guy who was kind of in charge of Stephen's execution, right? There was no trial, nothing fair about this. This guy was just brutally killed. And the guy who's presented as kind of like the one who's orchestrating this is a guy named Saul. And Saul presented kind of like the, the leader of this persecution doesn't stay satisfied with the death of Stephen and instead starts this onslaught, this persecution of Christians in Jerusalem. And he is the instigator of the scattering that happens. And so Christians leave Jerusalem and one of the places they go to is Antioch. Look what happens in Acts chapter 9. Look, Acts chapter 9, verse 1 through 2, Saul comes up again. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, any Christians, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So Saul sees them scatter and he says, okay, two can play that game. And he goes and he gets letters so that he has the authority to go find these Christians, some of whom have fled to Damascus, and bring them back bound. This was not a nice man. This was a hard man. Controlled by anger and hatred. And he's on his way to Damascus. And when you read the rest of Acts chapter 9, as he's on his way to go imprison more Christians, a light shines and he's knocked off his horse. And he meets Jesus. And Jesus says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And through a series of events, the man who hated and persecuted Christians, approving of their execution, now became one. Not only that, now God rose him up as a leader in the church. So Saul's life completely transformed, changed around in this incredible way. And as if that's not enough... Through an incredible set of circumstances that only God could orchestrate. We're going to finish the passage in Acts 11. Acts 11, 25 through 27. Here's what it says. This is after Barnabas went. He checked it out, saw the grace of God at work in Antioch. It says, so Barnabas, leaving uh, Antioch, went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Antioch had such a reputation of following after Jesus. This is the place where they were first called Christians. So follow what we just saw. Saul, hating Christians, persecuting them, responsible for leading the effort for Stephen to be killed continuing to persecute more Christians, starting to spread and scatter the church all throughout the region. One of the places they go to is Antioch. Saul, through his persecution of Christians in Jerusalem, indirectly is responsible for the starting of one of the most influential churches in the world. So he starts this church very indirectly by persecuting Christians and scattering them. And now Barnabas goes and gets Saul and brings him to that church. And there are very likely people there who remember Saul, who remember the anger in his face, who remember what he did. People there who saw what happened to Stephen or had heard firsthand accounts of what happened to Stephen and now Saul is in their midst and it says that he stays with them and teaches them for a year. And Antioch would actually become Paul's home church his basis of operations as he would go on missionary journeys throughout the region. 
part of the reason that Jesus didn't stutter when he said, I will build my church. Part of the reason why Jesus meant it when he said, you'll be my witnesses to the ends of the earth is because even the things that would try and stop the Jesus movement, God has a way of turning around to just spark it. And he takes the terrible, terrible death of Stephen and he sparks a movement by the scattering of Christians and then he takes the lead persecutor and he makes him into the leader of the church. So if you have a past, if you have things that you deeply regret, Saul was a hard man. He was a bad man. But his sin and his hardness was not too hard for the grace of Jesus. And he experienced forgiveness and restoration and now God used him in an incredible way. You probably know him better as Paul, the one who wrote most of our New Testament. All the letters that he wrote to the different churches. This is Paul. His Hebrew name is Saul. Guy with a past who God used. God takes cosmically unqualified people and colossally imperfect people and he empowers them to share the hope that they have in Jesus. Uh, last week, Pastor Roby really shared with us that now is go time. We've, we've experienced uh, quite a few weeks of, of turmoil, of hardship as a church. And what I would say has marked this season is the grace of God at work. Now is go time. Now is the time of our expenditure. And so what does it look like if we're to put handlebars on that idea and, and say, okay, well, what does it look like for us to actually go with that? That now is the time to give it all. What does it look like for us to, to realize we are unqualified and we are imperfect, we've got our issues, but God is the one who works through us and so we're gonna go. What, is, what does it look like uh, I've been reading an autobiography of one of my uh, ministry heroes, uh, a guy of, uh, who's not only when he was alive did he influence many thousands of people, but after he died, his writings continued to influence people. And I've been reading his autobiography, and he shares how it is that he first came to faith in Jesus. How it is that he realized that he needed God's forgiveness and his grace. And he shares this story, and... Um, the words he uses to describe the man are, are bizarre. Uh, he, he talks about how it was a snowy day and he, he found himself just kind of going off into the only church that he could make his way to because of how bad the weather was. So he goes into this church and there's maybe a dozen people in the church and the preacher didn't show up. No preacher to be found. And so this guy among the 12 or 15 people gets up, this slim man gets up and goes to the pulpit and he stands and opens up his Bible and he goes and he reads one verse. And he proceeds to give a message on this one verse. And I kid you not, this godly man who's recounting the story of him coming to Christ, he uses these words. This was a stupid man who was not trained. This was someone, he said, he stuck to that one verse and kept repeating it because he doesn't think he had much else material to work with. 
And he took that one scripture and he shared it. There's a footnote at the bottom of the autobiography that says, they've tried to search and find who this man was. Because he would have known this person in the future. This, this man grew to be one of the most influential people. They couldn't find him. No name, unqualified, untrained, with no platform. Really, in our eyes, no level of influence. And this man stood up and he shared a message. All that he knew to say. And this man, his life was changed and God used him in a miraculous, incredible way. And he continues to use this man because one guy realized that your greatest platform is oftentimes just the people that God has placed in front of you. That God has given us a platform. We may not have thousands of followers, but the person right in front of us That's our platform. Who are the people in your life? Who are the ones that maybe you feel inadequate? Maybe you feel like you've tried and failed. And Who are the people in your life? I want to ask you one thing. You you got a a reading guide when you came in, a listening guide. I want you to take that out. And uh, if you have a pen, I hope you do. Um, If you don't, I want you to take your phone out and write in the notes section. I want you to do something. I want you to think of one person in your life, if you're, if you're a Jesus follower, one person in your life at, at your lunch table or in your workplace or in your neighborhood or maybe in your classroom, students, one person who does not know the grace of God that you know, I want you to write their name down and maybe tear off that little part of your listening guide and you keep that name with you all week, seven days. And every day you pray for that person. You ask God for an open door to share with that person. Perhaps even just simply invite them. Say, hey, I I go to this church over in a bunch of warehouses and uh, you should come check it out with me on Sunday. Maybe we can go grab lunch after. So would, would you pray for them? Invite them? And that invitation then opens up the door for you to start having conversations with that. Wait, what, what did you think about the service? What did you think about the message? Just one person. Write their name down. I'm going to write mine. Because I know this is for me as much as it is for you. And this week, carrying that name with us, praying for that name, asking God to use us. Though we're unqualified, though we're imperfect, this is how God works. Let's be the church. Now, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, by that we mean that you've never surrendered your life to Jesus. God sent him to rescue you. He loves you. And Jesus on the cross took your place and suffered death. He suffered the judgment and wrath that you deserve, that I deserve so that we can be set free. And if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. You'll be forgiven. If you want to experience that right now, you can. So I invite you, just bow your heads with me. We'll close up. Just in this moment of privacy, 
Say, God, I know I need you. I know I have sin in my life and that what I deserve is judgment from you. But God, you sent your son for me who died for me. And Lord, I believe that on the cross, Jesus paid it all so that I can experience heaven. So Lord, I surrender to you. I give you my life. I put my trust in you. Heavenly Father, I pray all of us in this room, though we're inadequate, though we're imperfect, all of us would realize we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to you, not us. May you work through us this week. Father, I pray that West Pines Community Church would be more at work Monday through Saturday and even on Sunday, that we would be your people in a hurting world that needs hope. So Father, where there is shame, where there is regret over the past, I pray that in the light of your gospel of grace, that that shame would fade away. I pray for those who feel inadequate, who feel like they aren't qualified to serve you. Father, remind them of your promise. You're faithful. Lord, we love you so much. We need you. And we ask, we beg, that you would work in and through your people. We love you, Jesus, and we pray this in your precious name. Thank you for listening. For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at westpines.org. If you'd like to speak with someone about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, please call at 954-432-0321 or you can email us at podcast at westpines.org.